Well, good morning again, those who are with us, those who are at home, and those who are downstairs. You know, what does it mean to you to hear these words, to follow after? Perhaps what comes to your mind first is, of course, a Facebook following or a LinkedIn following, you know, following. I think that's the modern, most uh, often used concept. And, and that kind of a follower, what would that imply? Or perhaps you follow a certain op-ed writer or a certain novelist. Perhaps you follow a certain artist or a musician. What does it mean to follow after someone? Well, here today we are presented with the reality that who we follow or what we follow determines how we follow. I mean, that's kind of obvious. You know, if you follow a, a musician, it's going to require a certain setup in your home or wherever you listen to music, and it's going to require certain actions, etc. It's kind of a, a dumb point because it's obvious, but, but I want it to be in front of you today. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? That's what our passage wants us to consider, but let us begin in prayer. And so, Father, thank you for already just the renewal that we feel coming into your presence, a reminder that it is safe uh, to be with you today, that as much as we feel the shame and the guilt of our sin, of our lovelessness, of our uh, inactivity, um, and the other things that perhaps any one of us confessed today, to hear the words, to remember the words that you are gracious and that you forgive us, Lord, we thank you. And we pray now that, that we would not take that grace cheaply, that you would help us to consider how not to experience grace as if cheap. But Lord, that you would help us to consider what it would really mean to be your follower, that kind of following that is worthy of your honor and the manner in which you have served us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's just keep in mind that uh, the context of this passage uh, just cannot be lost. You know, Matthew took great pains, as I've hoped you to see throughout the study, that, that he is creating a narrative, a narrative that, that wants to be a theology, if you will. It's, it's not just historical moments or chronicles. It's, it's truly redacted in a manner that would communicate the nature of the kingdom of God and particularly what it would mean here to follow Christ. And so we remember a couple of Sundays ago, or three Sundays ago, that we, we were presented by Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as one who is great authority. Matthew does this particularly through the Sermon on the Mount, verses 5 through 7, where following the sermons on the Mount, Jesus is shown to be one who teaches as God-like authority. You remember how it was said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What kind of a teacher says such things? As if the teacher is my final and ultimate judge. That invoked a response, rightly so, by the crowds in verse 28 of 7. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were awed. They were astonished, some even fearful at his teachings. 
for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Jesus is the greatest of authorities in this world because he's an authority like no other that comes from outside of this world is the point that Matthew wants to make. And then he turns immediately in chapter 8 and he presents Christ as one who has great powers as he presents him with a group of four miracles. You'll remember the first episode was a cleansing of the leper. The second, healing centurion's servant. The third, healing Peter's mother-in-law. And the fourth, healing a demon-possessed and with many illnesses. Through the way that he presents this, the way in which they are not similar, as if to be some kind of a policy manual on healing or all this other stuff, it's very clear, he leaves no doubt, that it was Jesus who did this, and he brings with him the power, a power no less than the power of creation power, of a creator power. He shows how in each instance there is a new creation entering into the world in the powers of Jesus Christ, and yet with a mere word, with no tactics and gimmicks, just with a mere word, where there was no doubt among the people that his word had the power to recreate a human life. And so there's this great anticipation. How then will this change the reality of the people Interestingly enough, Matthew leaves us after this incredible manifestation of Christ's authority and power by quoting Isaiah. In other words, how are we to think of this man? Who is he? And of all the prophecies, he chooses a prophecy that emphasizes the Messiah as a suffering servant. Right about the time when you're going to attribute to him the kind of honor we would to, say, a worldly leader, and where there would be this impetus to kind of serve him and, and, in, a, in a certain way, then he becomes the servant leader. And we're told there that he, he did this in order that he might take our affirmities and bear our diseases. It's clearly a segue to our passage today. Where in the same Jesus, authority and power, greatest in authority, greatest in power, you could say, is the same person, far from being a narcissist, one could argue rightly in this case, fixated on himself given his great authority and power. I mean, is that honest? I mean, narcissism is a disease because no one's worthy of it. But I guess if you were Christ, you would be worthy of self-fixation. You would be worthy of everyone fixating on him. You could be, in a certain way, a narcissist. And it would be a right kind of, of response, given who he is. His incredible and greatest of all authority, greatest of all power. In other words, you could expect someone like this to be entitled to more privileges than anyone else. And if it doesn't get his way, would be very upset because he deserves it for who he is. You would expect people to admire him and he would expect to be admired. Perhaps as a narcissist would, he would flaunt his superiority in a way of self-exaltation. 
He would probably lack empathy, as narcissists do, and willingness to take advantage of others considered inferior. And yet, in what could be considered a surprise turn of events, Matthew presents Jesus as the absolute opposite of a narcissist. Jesus here is presented as a suffering servant, such as to call all who would follow him to embrace his calling as a suffering servant on behalf of those he came to save. Let's take a look or clo- closer look at how Matthew frames this. And it's particularly framed, keep in mind, clearly it is framed around those who would say, Jesus, I want to be your follower. It's a call narrative to a certain degree. But it, like I said, it's an ironic and surprising kind of narrative. Again, Jesus has just exposed his great authority and power, manifesting an authority and power that appears to be without limit. And in this context, two people, Matthew indicates, comes up to him with a willingness to follow him. Understandably, those who witness his authority and power indicate an exuberance, if you could say, if not maybe fanatical willingness to follow him. A populist teacher, yea, especially a narcissist, would have welcomed such an experience would have welcomed such fanaticism. But Jesus, he's no populist, and he's not a narcissist. So here's what happens. First, the offer to follow Jesus. Teacher, he says, I will follow you, and notice this language, I will follow you wherever you go. Now let's be honest. Those of you who have become a follower of Christ don't you have those moments? Haven't you had those moments? You think back, I mean, perhaps it's a sincere moment. I can remember many, many, many episodes in my life where there's either that beginning conversion episode, where there's many subsequent episodes, convicted of my sins, wanting to repent, and, and then I come back with that kind of, Lord, my my gosh, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. I'm in. And it's not meant, I don't think, here to diminish perhaps even the sincerity of that. It's a curious response, though, isn't it? He does not say, okay, come on. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say no either. So there's not a Yes, come follow me, or no, don't follow me. And he doesn't interview him. I mean, he doesn't kind of come to him and say, well, let me, let me look at your credentials here. Let me see if you're worthy of being a follower of me in order to discern deserving credentials. All he talks about, which seems to be the focus of what it really means to follow Christ, is the cost. I mean... It's as if with the, the Christ, the, the one with all authority and all power, he, he doesn't need your credentials. Not really. That might shatter some of you and some of us whose life has been filled and has been absolutely enamored with building a credential. I mean, that might be surprising if you stop and think about it. At first you think, oh, I didn't think that. But 
But really, isn't the whole life that we live been about credentialing? No matter what you are, an athlete, a musician, a, a scholar, a business person, I mean, on and on it goes. A physician, it's all, all, all about credentials. And here, there's no mention of it. And, and ironically, there's no mention of it in the other call narratives in Matthew. What seems to always come back <laughs> that makes a man or woman worthy to follow Christ is the cost that they're willing to pay. So here's how Christ does it. Hearing, kind of focusing in, if you can tell, on that wherever you go, wherever you go, wherever you go, Lord, I will go. And his sincere, I will assume, if not fanatical and naive commitment at this time. And so as if to say, you want to follow me, you want to go wherever I go? Well, foxes have holes, and birds of the air even have a nest. But I, the Son of Man, I have no way to lay my head. Get into the moment of that man's life. If this, you know, this was a real event. This excitement, what happened to it? It doesn't really tell you his response. I wished I knew. I think there would be a reality check going on about now, don't you think? <laughs> Where are you going? Well, I got to tell you, I'm not going to ever have this nice house. And I'm not going to ever have, you know, a perch up in the sky. I'm going to be suffering. And I'm going to give it all away. All the pleasures of this world, all the conveniences of this world, every bit of it. I'm just going to forego that kind of stuff. Now, you want to follow me? You can just imagine. I mean, there are a couple of things I want to mine down on here in this response that might not readily be available to you. It's interesting how many times Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. Here for the first time in Matthew's gospel, it'll happen 72 times in the New Testament, 21 times in Matthew. It's obviously a very significant title that might cause us a little perplexity about his own self-disclosure. And you'd be tempted to speak immediately to the fact that he's a son of man. He's a human person. And you'd be right to do that. Certainly that is the intent. That this one, with the greatest of all authority and the greatest of all power, is here now is, is reviewed as one who is a man. But if in any way that would make you to think somehow of a less glorified being, then you would have it all wrong. You see, because he employs it exclusively of himself, in terms of a unique role as having great authority and power, such as he does, for instance, in Matthew 9, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he forgives sins. This is when this comes up often. In moments of great manifestations of power, not humility, of exaltation, of authority. You see it elsewhere, Matthew 12 
For the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. He's not like another man who is under the Sabbath. There is no one on earth that could say that, that I am Lord over the Sabbath. Again, he talks about that also, this Son of Man, though, as one who will be humble. I mean, it's this very phrase that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised, and they will be greatly distressed, Matthew 17, 22. What? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and yet he will submit to the judgment of a mere temporal king at the whim of a populist cry to crucify him? And then we know more about it. Luke tells us that the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. What's going on here? How do you get these kinds of desperate concepts coming together as one? Greatest of authority, greatest of, of power, and yet humblest as a servant. Well, it comes from Daniel. This whole thing, whenever you see the concept son of man, it comes from Daniel's prophecy of the Messiah. I had a passage read today that's going to really speak to next week. Because I actually, in the last minute, divided the passages out, as you can tell. I wished I had now read you this passage, so I'll read it to you. Matthew 7. I'm sorry, Daniel 7. As I watched the night visions, says Daniel, I saw one like a son of man. There it is. But look, listen to this. He came from above with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one who was presented before him, that is the Father, God himself. And to him, this, this, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and kingship, wherein all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion, unlike any other dominion, Daniel describes, is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Wow. This one, who you could be tempted to say is a mere mortal, will be none other than the ancient one, the very son of man who will be king of kings and lord of lords forever and ever. The one, the only one who can deliver us from evil. The one and the only one that can forgive our sins. The one and the only one that with a mere word can recreate you and can recreate this world. Of course, this is the vision, Daniel 7, that informs so much of the book of Revelation. It's the most quoted prophecy in Revelation. It's all through almost every passage of Revelation. As it's envisioned this day, long awaited where this son of man, one who is mortal, one who is divine, ascends or descends from heaven with, with the, among the clouds, with the roaring of the angels in this 
incredible, everlasting procession of a king to the throne that is now brought to earth. Where the whole of earth becomes, every nation, every language, all peoples become members of that kingdom. Well, it's obvious what Matthew is saying here. You want to follow after the Son of Man? Well, in a sense, he's going to say, you're crazy to think for a moment that you could replace him or that you could serve him in a worthy manner. I don't think the passage directly or at least initially is meant to just focus on my commitment. I think here the interesting way that he says it is that I want you to focus on my commitment. I want you to focus and remember, if you were a scribe, that first one where he said this, you would have known Daniel's prophecy. It was as popular then as it maybe is now, if not more so. And you would have heard those words, and no doubt these scribes, experts on the law, experts on prophecy, would have heard him say, I am Daniel's prophecy fulfilled. And on the one hand, they would hear him say in a very humbling way, you can't do this, what I'm about to do. You can't. This kind of commitment, this kind of a commitment who is coming from one who has this kind of authority and this kind of power, and yet this kind of a commitment that would surrender himself as a servant, as a suffering even servant, well, there is something that you aren't capable of being, and that's me. And yet... With the same tone, clearly after the concept of follow me, we are called then to consider what would it look like to follow then this person? What would it be to follow after him? Well, clear, while it would never complete or satisfy what the ancient of days, the son of man, was here to satisfy, clearly it would seek to be after in type his service. In type, we would, in effect, follow after one who had become a suffering servant. There's a sense in which, on the one hand, Matthew will explain later how the Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out his kingdom and all causes of sin and all evildoers. He's going to do something that I don't have the power to do and nor do you. And yet this kingdom is not from this world. It's according to earthly created authority and power. Contra the uncreated as to transcend all created. He, he's a suffering servant not of this world. This is not a call for me to have a messianic complex about myself. This is not a call for me to bear the burdens of the church of Jesus Christ as if I could possibly bear them. No, in so many words, that's Jesus' problem. You're Jesus' problem. I'm Jesus' problem. But then we become under-shepherds or we become under-servants. Not that we can bear the load. Boy, do we need to hear that, some of us. I cannot bear the load of my children's salvation. I cannot bear the load of your salvation. I can't bear the load of the salvation of the world. There's a stop here. I am not the Ancient of Days. I am not the Son of Man. 
and nor are you. And yet, to follow him would be to follow him in type, to become myself a suffering servant. Even as I'm invested with powers, given in, with, and through the life of the church, the authority of the word of God, and to dispense that and to rightly divide that as you can do as a witness as well. The power and the authority of, of the sacrament to bind and to loose the kingdom of God into people's lives through the lordship of Christ mediated, acting in, with, and through the church, admitting and demitting to the table of the Lord. The king prophet, the priest. Only Jesus is the, the prophet, priest, and king. And yet, as those who are suffering servants, executing those things, not as narcissists, not as those who would feel entitled to certain honor and glory to do so, confess, 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 but as one who is an underservant, an underservant. I think that's the tension that this passage wants to draw out in us. Yes, the commitment to follow after Christ, it's not like any other commitment. It's a level of commitment like no other commitment deserves to ask of you even. No commitment deserves this kind of commitment. For no commitment that you could possibly serve, not even your family, deserves this kind of commitment. And that brings us to the second example. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, I don't know about you, I'm going, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty important thing. It's a pretty intense thing. Just as in our society today, uh, there is probably very few moments in our lives that command more commitment than those things associated with burying the dead. It's about the only thing I can think of that probably universally you go to your boss and say, hey, I, I have a funeral I need to go to, and they're going to say, oh, man, go. I mean, you can't ask your boss to go see your pastor in a consultation hardly. You can't ask your, your boss to go and see, you know, do this or that or this, that. Maybe, yeah, the kids, I got to go pick up my kid, they're sick. Yep, that might pass, you know. But just think about that for a minute. My point, not to get detailed here. Just think about what kind of commitment that this person is suggesting. He comes in and says, Lord, first let me go and bury my dead. And Jesus said to him, follow me, and let the bed dairy themselves. Now, I'm tempted to read this very cynically, aren't you? Like, okay, the megalomaniac finally came out. But I think there's a greater point here, obviously. I mean, we don't know who this offer, other disciple was. We do know that bearing the remains of one's ancestors was considered an extremely important family commitment in that day as it is today. And to be clear, there's nothing in this passage that indicates from Christ that, Christ, from Christ that he was here speaking with exaggeration or figuratively either, though. 
I don't think it's a metaphor. There's just nothing here that would give me permission from the scripture to say that. I think we must take it literally at this moment. It does not follow, though, I must say, that Jesus would require all his followers under all circumstances to, re- to neglect the burial of their dead. That's not what this is about. So don't push that. Any more than he extends to everyone the command laid upon the rich young ruler to sell all that he had and give to the poor. It's, there's a circumstance here. We don't know it. We don't know the situation. We don't know who this disciple is. But that's not the point, you see. Matthew intentionally limits what you know so that we won't miss the point. And the point being that there is a kind of commitment given the kind of person Jesus is as the Son of Man that is worthy of a kind of commitment that exceeds every other commitment of your life. That's clearly the point of both of these follow me narratives. That there's a kind of a commitment that if you understood the cost, you would recognize that it's worthy of the most extreme of all costs. And there's a kind of commitment that if you understand the nature of this commitment, given who he is, that warrants the highest of all commitments over others. Where there is no cost too great, even if it costs you your life, and there's no commitment so great, even if it means you not being committed to that which is, on an earthly sense, your highest commitment. I just can't think of a way that that God in his divine providence could have orchestrated these follow me narratives in a way that could communicate any better what I just said. It's an allegiance above all allegiances that transcends all circumstances that could require all cost and expense. You see the point? Seek first the kingdom of God. This one, this ancient of, this man, this man, son of man, he is the image, remember, of the invisible God. Colossians explains a little bit of the son of man idea. The firstborn of all creation. There he is, man, but the image of the invisible God. For by him, this son of man, all things were created in heaven and earth. Really? Really? I mean, there is someone like that? Yep. Visible and invisible, he created them, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Notice how, how comprehensive this is. Comprehensive in what he's created by the power of a word with the authority of who he is. Comprehensive in, in terms of, of how all of creation is not only through him, being sustained by him being created, but now for him. And what would it mean to serve for him? Well, that's the irony. It means to be a suffering servant. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. If you're thinking about being a Christian or if you are a Christian, there is no way, if we treat the scripture seriously, 
to water that down, to turn it into some religious hyperbole. Because it's rooted in who he is. It's not just a fanatical populist movement, this Christianity. In fact, again, if that's the kind of thing like me that makes me most cynical about Christianity in the context of Christendom, then you will see over and over how Christ resists whatever temptations that might be given him to become a populist leader. Right about the time, every time, read your scripture, just read the the gospels. Every time he's about to get popular, man, he just dishes it. He just explodes it. This is not a populist movement with a fanaticism driving it. This is a movement that very carefully is choreographed that we might understand who Jesus is and the reality of that would transform our lives. You know, when you're really called to commit to something, you really find yourself evaluating the cost, don't you? Count the cost. Well, here the challenge is to count the cost. You want to follow me? Count the cost. Is there any inconvenience of worldly circumstances that you are holding on to? Well, you're not going to really be a follower of me then. Count the cost. Is there any commitment that you have on earth, yea, even your own family? that it exceeds your commitment to me, then you're not worthy to follow me. That's not a populist statement. We're reminded here of something the great German theologian and Nazi dissident Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in what you may have heard is a very famous book. It was retitled here in the American context called The Cost of Discipleship. In this book, he writes, and it's a very famous statement that often people quote, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die, period. Now, the context of Bonhoeffer's point was his own situation under Nazi Germany and his participation in the confessing church movement that resisted the temptation to exchange the exclusive crown rights of Christ over the church for the lesser crown rights of political regime. This is one of the finest documents, if you ever read it, and I've, I've read it and studied it and wrote papers on it, and it's one of the finest documents we have in Christianity, really, of what it would truly mean to confess Christ as Lord. And the manner in which that lordship prevents us from aligning ourselves as a church, particularly there, and you'll see all through it, with that any other regime, any political regime. It's in the context, particularly even before and and during, but right before, uh, it starts before uh, he was elected, if you will, the Fuhrer, which is the word leader, uh, someone who he proclaimed himself later after his election, the leader, sort of the Lord. And over and over again, it's, it's this document that, that was part of this movement explains how the lordship of Christ, it is worthy of all cost. The time, as you may know, there was a Nazi Christian church that was formed under Hitler's leadership and, and was committed in a political way to the political platform of, of Hitler. And that was the cause of great persecution and suffering from the government. 
to those who were the confessing church, not the politicized church. Remember, Adolf Hitler became the democratically elected chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933, to tell you his story. It was later that he seized the title of Fuhrer, which means leader in German. Bonhoeffer distinguished himself as an early opponent to this national socialism or national Christianization. And he did this through a radio broadcast where he would often speak about the limits, the limits of political and nationalistic power. A limit that, that was always inferior to the power of Christ as given through the epicenter of his kingdom, the Church of Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer's point was to define a good leader. And that's when he quoted that quote. What is a true Fuhrer? When Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. He was saying, we don't need a narcissist, Fuhrer. We need a suffering servant, Fuhrer. And standing in opposition to the Fuhrer principle, Bonhoeffer needed to define Christian leadership, you see. And so he further wrote this, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christian, or, I'm sorry, allegiance to the suffering Christ it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. A good leader serves others and leads others to authority. Such then was the context that inspired the writing of Nashvolga, which means follow after, translated in the English context as the cost of discipleship. Nashvolga, follow after. Follow after. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I think the take home is quite clear. Let me read you another passage here from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Here's the way he explains it. What he means bids him come and die. For it can happen in many ways in a Christian's life that you would follow after in this way. He says the cross is laid on every Christian. The first call to follow Christ is his suffering. The call to suffering which every human must experience in the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old person which is the result of his encounter with Christ. And as we embark upon discipleship, we resender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to his death. Thus it becomes, begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but rather it meets us at the very beginning of our communion with Christ. That is to say, it starts, our journey of following after starts with this commitment, not ends with it. When Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. See, that's the context of that passage. And it may be a death like that of the first disciple who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like, like uh, Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man in his call. You know, there's so many deaths that you are called to. It might not end up homelessness or even physical death. These deaths can come in so many ways. 
It's when the circumstance of providence takes a car away from us or takes some other privilege away from us. Instead of shaking my fist at God, it's submitting to God and asking, oh God, what by my car or what by this circumstance are you intending to put to death in me? Because you see, this following after Christ in death begins with a following after Christ in repentance, turning away, putting to death the idols of our lives. I could say, and you could say, if you've been a Christian for very long, that that began the day I became a Christian. It started with things that were quite obvious. The time I was drinking quite a lot, and I had a little bottle of Jack Daniel under my car seat, and I remember becoming a Christian and coming out of the pub where I prayed to receive Christ. I got that bottle, and I slung it out the car. I shouldn't have done that. I should have put it in the trash can. But that was the first death for me. And then death upon death upon death has followed. Many deaths that I didn't ask for, that I didn't even commit to voluntarily, deaths that God put into my life as he puts them into your life. Suffering, all suffering. We have the option, listen to this, we have the option to suffer as a narcissist, feeling entitled to something more, or to suffer as a servant being grateful for the honor of bearing the infirmities of the world. Doing so as a witness. Doing so as, as a follower who can say that with my suffering, I can now bring the healing of God's new life to others, as Corinthians describes it. It's this suffering servant that does not consider anything as almost like deserving. It's the kind of suffering when you serve Christ's church, but no one seems to appreciate you or recognize you, and you're tempted with that cynicism, you're tempted with that bad attitude, no one really cares anyway. And Man, I've felt it. <laughs> have you felt it? I'm sure you have if you've devoted yourself seriously to the Christian church. And that's when we become suffering servant. Why would I think myself a follower of Christ to be entitled to more? They didn't appreciate him. They crucified him. You see how this, this is crucial, people. This is crucial. This idea, follow after, follow after. That might ought to be the most important words you could put on that mirror or that, that TV or whatever you look, wherever you put your notes to remind you of life. Follow after. As a suffering servant, being willing to die to my idols. Idols that will be only exposed when God dares to take them away. That's how they're exposed. Watch your reaction to those circumstantial things. Or maybe it's the idols of our, they will be exposed in other ways. I mean, think about it. How do we make our commitments? How do we make our commitments? It's very possible, and I think we probably all can, can deal with this, but, but we kind of have in our minds, well, it's too much to give this. Starts there. We're trying to balance our commitments out, probably. Balance them out. Let's see if I can balance them out. 
And so I balance it out. Okay, we got to have some balance here between my commitment to Christ and my commitment to my job. But see, you just lost something right there. No, 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 no. There's only one commitment in your life now as a follower after Christ. That's Christ. Now we submit everything, every institution, every sphere of our life to him. Family, church, work, or secular vocation. All of it. Callings. They are all callings of God. All three are instituted by God in Scripture to be something worthy of your devotion, family, church, state. But they are all three callings, plural, under the singular calling, capital C, to follow after. So the, so the, 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 the task that we have here is not to balance church with state with family, it's within whatever circumstance of your life that you're in, whatever season of life that you're in, and they change, to exercise Christ's lordship over each one of those fears. In my life, now at 62, I didn't want to say that. I wish I could just kind of stick it at sicky. But I've seen that, that, well, there's a season where the lordship of Christ required this kind of commitment to this sphere which might be a little different than the next season of life that requires, no, this kind of commitment to this sphere. You see, this is not a balancing act. This is a lordship act every single time. But that's how we make commitments if we understand this idea, following after. The lordship of Christ, a willingness. I mean, think about it. Just think about the ways that we rationalize in our head. Are we willing to give up two hours less sleep that we might be a servant of Christ? I mean, really? Even maybe lose a whole night's sleep? Are we willing to reschedule a birthday party so that we can support a special event where you know you can join your church in being a witness for Christ? I'm not, you know, I'm not getting into your lordship issue. I'm just trying to say these are the kind of decisions you're having to make. Where does the lordship of Christ really come through? It doesn't start with our having an a priori balance grid out in front of us, and now we just kind of start allocating our time. It comes to every event, every attitude, I mean, every event, every circumstance, every situation, and every commitment, all inferior to the commitment of Christ. That's the point of our passage. And why would he deserve that? Because he is the son of man. One who is more glorious and powerful and authoritative than any other being that exists in all however many worlds there are, <laughs> however many dimensions there are. Some of you probably believe in the fifth dimension. I don't know. I kind of, I think there probably is. I don't know. He's Lord of that dimension. Remember? And so think about what would it mean changing and maybe losing a cell in business. One less clean room this week. One less compliment from a neighbor or colleague. One less degree of worldly fame. One less grade of car. One less friend. One less piece of clothing. One less, one less, one less. You see? Follow after. Consider who Christ is. And we could not be resentful, not logically, 
Sinful? Yeah, we could, and we are. But we could do this without resentment. Why? Because there's absolutely no way that you are as authoritative and powerful and glorious as Christ, part one, worthy, if ever anyone was, of being a narcissist. And I use that word in a very amoralized way, I know, so it's kind of hard to hear that. But there's no one, not one of us, that even begins to compare to his glory and honor and power and authority. And yet, right alongside of that, there is no one, no one that's ever suffered more for you as your servant. That's why he deserves all of me and you. That might God give us grace to one day at a time move closer and closer to not just lost it. God. What a great point to end, and I just forgot the word. Yes, follow after. Amen.